and welcome to the latest Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is the 107th and the first one in November. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and Halloween was pretty uneventful here. Some people locally ignored the cancelled Halloween and were knocking on doors anyway, but it was only a very small minority. One thing I wasn't aware of about Halloween was that it was the first Halloween full moon since, well, I guess that depends where you live. In the UK, it was the first since 1974, and in the US, the first to be visible to all time zones since 1944. Of course, in Scotland, with all the rain we've been having, it's difficult to actually remember what the night sky and the daytime sky, for that matter, look like. It was also a blue moon, which is when you have two full moons in a month. Or at least that's the calendar blue moon. And the next time that happens is August 2023. So that's our astronomy lesson for the day, and it has absolutely nothing to do with today's podcast. On that note, I will tell you who our guests are on the show this week. We chatted with Kavita Karnick, Tate and Lyle VP of Global Nutrition and Open Innovation, Aaron Fanning, Lead Nutritionist, Sports and Active Lifestyles at Fonterra's Ingredient Company, NZMP, and Ian Carroll, Senior Strategic Marketing Manager for Plant Protein at Kerry. And of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from StoneX. I get to kind of do another one of these tomorrow, only this time it's our live webinar on using dairy ingredients in innovative products. And that's taking place at 16 hours CET, 3 p.m. UK and 10 a.m. Eastern. It's an hour long, including answering questions. And as it's live, who knows what mistakes I can make. We have three great guests on the panel and it's free to sign up at DairyReporter.com. If you can't make it live, that's not a problem either. You can still register and listen when you like. So I do hope you'll join us. It takes place on what is an alleged celebration here in the UK, and that's Guy Fawkes Night, which commemorates the failed attempt to blow up the Houses of Parliament in London on November the 5th, 1605. A pretty strange celebration, actually, so we'll leave it there and get to the news. Finally, I hear you say... And so, to some of the news highlights you may have missed over the past seven days. I guess it's easy to miss the news when there's a US election, a pandemic, lockdowns, Halloween, and all kinds of other things going on. Dairy Gold has expanded its organic options. ADM gave us its top five global food industry trends for 2021. And one of them wasn't eating on a plane, which I never do anyway, but I would like the opportunity again sometime soon. In the plant-based arena, Norseland is launching a grated version of its Applewood Vegan in the UK, Notco is launching Not Milk in the US, and Violife is launching a range of cheese alternatives in Canada. Ulrich and Short expanded its ingredient range for dairy beverages, and Tate and Lyle is set to acquire a tapioca business in Thailand. There's another story I need to cover in person. Morinaga Milk is expanding lactoferrin production capacity through its German subsidiary, and in the US, DFA is accepting applications for its 2021 accelerator program. The IDF was in the news a few times this week. It published its World Dairy Situation Report 2020 and its IDF Animal Health Report number 14. 
and its online conference on sheep, goat, and other non-cow milks is taking place right now. And it also has a new president, Pier Cristiano Brazzale. Onua Foods UK announced a £3 million investment at its leek cheese packing facility. And that's not leek the vegetable. There is a place in the middle of England called leek. We had some third quarter financials from Glanbia and Lando Lakes. And Fonterra also published its sustainability report 2020. Pacor wants to boost recycling with digital barcode technology, and in the U.S., Hispanic cheesemakers Nuestro Queso are expanding their Illinois plant. You can read all of these and quite a few more at DairyReporter.com. So let's get to this week's interviews. And first we chatted with Kavita Karnik, Tatan Lyle VP of Global Nutrition and Open Innovation, about fiber. Okay, well, I guess if we could start with some information on what Tate and Lyle has been doing with respect to research in fiber. Absolutely. Can I start with just adding to what you may know about Tate and Lyle? I know everyone in the UK sees the name on sugar packets and various types of sugars in the supermarket. We are a global supplier of food and drink ingredients and solutions. We sold our sugar business nearly 10 years ago. Although, of course, our name is being used on the packaging, but we don't own the sugar business anymore. In terms of my work and research on fibers, my team is responsible for all the nutrition-related research within Tate and Lyle. Our science underpins all the ingredients and solutions that we work on. We run clinical studies, preclinical studies, studies required for global regulatory approvals, and also to, of course, build on the health and wellness profile. For fiber specifically, as you know, a lot of consumers are interested in fiber. None of us are consuming enough as per the recommended daily dietary guidelines. However, people are conscious that sometimes mistakenly so, that fiber may, increasing fiber intake may cause uh, digestive issues. So we do a lot of work for our fibers portfolio for establishing their tolerance. I'm very pleased to say that one of our flagship proprietary fibers, Promotor, is highly tolerated, between two and three times better tolerated than some of our competitive fibers like inulin. So a lot of research goes into establishing the tolerance levels in various age groups, various populations. And since then, we have been building a research portfolio for uh, health benefits of fibers. This ranges from blood glucose level, positive impact on regulating blood glucose levels. Uh, This we have done in Caucasian white population, but also in Asian population as well. Of course, we continue to study effect on digestive health, gut health, prebiotic effect. We have started to dabble into effect on immunity. We have done a lot of work on effect of our fiber on calcium absorption. And this was one of the reasons we um, actually got uh, FDA approval for labeling Prometor as a fiber in the U.S. So we have a research portfolio on that. And then we continue to build our research on metabolic health, immunity, and some of the finer aspects of gut health as well. People hear about fiber quite a lot. What are the benefits of more fiber in the diet? And also associated with that, what are the Mm. dangers with not having enough fiber Mm. in the diet? 
If I may start with the second question, Jim, none of us are actually, as a population, none of us are actually consuming enough per recommendations. Generally speaking, number of countries in the world have various degrees of what we call as fiber gap. That's the gap between population intakes and what's recommended for those populations. Uh, specifically, just taking the example of the UK, our recommendations for adults is about 30 grams of fiber per day. And overall, as average, we tend to consume between 17 to 20 grams a day, depending on what gender you're talking about. So we don't consume enough. That's the reality. What happens if you don't? And what happens if you do enough? So I will just refer to one thing. We all know sort of traditional benefits of fiber about gut health, uh, regularity, uh, relief from constipation. But we are also learning a lot more of what fibers do for prebiotic effect, improving the gut microbiota and all the health benefits associated with it. Fibers also help to smooth out your blood glucose ups and downs throughout the day. And that's a big plus long-term beneficial effect of smoothened blood glucose effect is reduction in the risk of diabetes. I would just quote one piece of research, a very large study published a few years ago that showed when you move from low fiber intake, that's about 15 to 19 grams a day, to high fiber intake, about 25 grams plus, the risk of chronic diseases such as coronary heart disease type 2 diabetes and some type of cancers like uh, colorectal cancer decrease substantially. So all is good if you can increase your fiber intake. The challenge is, is how you do that. Absolutely. And I think that it's a one of those words. It's not like oligosaccharides that people can either pronounce or, or they don't <laughs> know what it is. But most people know about fiber. But what's the consumer awareness like around some of these issues and, and how do we improve that? So a consumer, generally speaking, when you say the word fiber, know that it's something that looks like fiber, so like wheat bran. Beyond that, people might know that fiber exists in fruit and veg and that they should be consuming that more. But there is not enough awareness of various types of dietary fibers. I must add here that like you and I are encouraged to consume variety of fruit and veg, we should also consume variety of fibers. Not all fibers are the same. Consumers are starting to learn fibers for satiety, fibers for weight management, but consumer awareness is still on the increase. It needs to be sort of more highlighted and more education is needed, but our customers are learning a lot more, want to include fibers in food categories that traditionally could not, like ice cream, for example, or confectionery, for example. So there is a lot more consumer awareness work that needs to be done. But we are well-placed to do that for the increasing consumer demand and also from the education point of view as well. What are the easiest ways for people to incorporate more fiber into their mm. diets? Easy way being the key word here, Jim. So most consumers will know that fiber is something that is good for them. They will tell you in consumer research that they want to increase, but data doesn't support that. So people are not still not eating enough. That could be due to various factors. Uh, one of them could be just difficulty identifying products with high fiber. Fruits and veg, it's very easy to know, but not others. Um, some of the challenges come in elderly population where traditional fibers are not well tolerated, insoluble fibers. 
And then also uh, some of the challenges are around concerns over taste and texture. But technology nowadays allows us to create soluble fibers like our portfolio, where inclusion is possible into food categories, like I said, such as milk-based beverages, ice creams, yogurts, confectionery, cereal bars. And those are the ways to increase fiber on top of your dietary intake of fiber by using products that are either fortified with fiber or just have increased levels of fiber, which are easily digestible, soluble, don't cause digestive intolerances like our Prometor, which is highly tolerated. Those would be the easy ways for overall general population, but also specifically people who find it difficult to increase their intake of fibers through normal fruit and veg. Specifically related to our publication, how does Tate and Lyle help customers that are working and formulating products in that particular space? Overall speaking, uh, soluble fibers like ours get used for two main reasons. One is when uh, sugar reduction is a desired outcome. And the other one is fiber fortification to uh, increase the fiber content of the product. Because our soluble fibers are very easily incorporated into dairy category, sort of yogurts, creams, ice creams, they are used when the sugar comes out to maintain the mouthfeel along with our textures portfolio to maintain the texture, but then also as an additional health benefit of fiber increase. There have been products launch. I can't, of course, name where our products go, but um, some of the dairy alternative ice creams have been using in the UK, uh, Prometor or uh, soluble corn fiber. Are, are there any challenges to working with fiber in terms of texture, mouthfeel, taste? It will depend on the food category. So there are fibers, like you, like I said before, like brand fiber, insoluble fibers, which pose a lot more challenges. And then there are soluble fibers, which depend on the category, the temperature, the production process. Some will work better than the others. But overall, our team, our tech services applications team is well-placed and have experience of working across different food matrices, a portfolio of our fibers, Although there are two main fibers, they come with uh, variations suitable for different food categories. Um, So they're very well placed with their experience of incorporating fibers into diverse range of uh, food categories. And when you work with your customers to bring these products to the end consumer, what kind of health claims can they make Mm. and how do they convey that to consumers? You have opened a whole new area of discussion here. So health claims, um, as you you will know, uh, changes with the regions, with the countries, with the level of inclusion of the ingredient within that. So we have, and I lead the regulatory team within Tatelal as well, we have experts in every region who can advise on what can be said on the pack, what levels of inclusion need to be achieved before a claim can be communicated to the end consumer. Overall speaking, there are claims which are based on the inclusion levels of fiber in the end product. So, for example, in the EU, you can talk about a product being a source of fiber if it has three grams of fiber per 100 gram of ingredient. And if you double the quantity, you can also talk about high in fiber or excellent source of fiber. And then from that onwards, you have claims in certain countries that allow fibers to be Uh, mentioned as a prebiotic ingredient. Some countries will allow claims on fiber supporting bone health. 
So it very much depends on the country and the use. But um, as I said, two different types of claim, one on the level of inclusion, another on the health claim, which is based on years of research, uh, but also assessed by regulatory authorities in different ways around the globe. Can you help companies to get that message across to the consumer or is it really down to the individual manufacturer how they do that? Uh, we can certainly help advise based on use of our ingredients, what would be achievable and possible. And our regulatory experts have very strong regional expertise going to that nuance. However, ultimately, um, every company will have their own policies, their own recipes, other ingredients that contribute to certain claims. So ultimately, the decision will be of our customers. But our regulatory team is very well placed to advise globally based on our ingredients. As this is something that you do quite a lot, are you yes. constantly working on new products and new applications for the products? Absolutely, absolutely. So nutrition and regulatory uh, teams work on one hand with our R&D colleagues, new product development teams that are working on different variations of our fiber, fibers coming from different sources to work with the approval of those new ingredients in various markets, looking at tolerance, looking at safety of such ingredients. And also, on the other hand, we work to build the health benefits of our fibers. We look at regulatory guidance. We look at how research portfolio can be built to support newer claims around our fibers. So we work with brand new ingredients, which are not even launched yet, but also continue to invest into building health benefit portfolio of our launched and commercially available ingredients. And just as examples, we have collaborations with highly credible, well-known, world-class universities in many countries around the world. Do you work across departments as well? Because, I mean, we, we just carried, as an example, the article about Titan Lyle purchasing a tapioca company mm. in Thailand. Do you mm. work with other departments on what Absolutely. they're working on? Absolutely. We work across all our platforms which includes, uh, of course, our health and wellness platforms, which includes fibers and proteins. Our sweeteners platform for low-calorie and caloric-quick sweeteners, we work with our texturance team. Um, we also work with our food systems business, which works with blends. Uh, so, yes, nutrition and regulatory forms sort of a central link for regulatory approvals to building the portfolio of science behind our ingredients. We work across all platforms uh, within Tatel Lyle. And I guess as people seem to be, because of the pandemic, paying a lot more attention to products with health claims, immunity claims, and taking more care of their own health, that must be something that you continue to work on and to educate about. I think education is sort of playing a big part nowadays with the pandemic situation. People are providing more attention to their health and looking at food as part of their healthy lifestyle. As a result of that, we are seeing boost in consumer understanding, consumer awareness of role of fibers, not just for laxation, one of the traditional benefits, but some of the newer benefits, whether it's uh, blood glucose levels and satiety for weight management, uh, right up to calcium absorption and emerging science on gut-brain axis immunity. We continue to invest in research, but we continue to invest in education as well. We hope that we are considered one of the experts in the area of soluble fibers and we continue to build on that position.
Next up, it's over to New Zealand to talk about sports nutrition, as well as a few other things such as healthy ageing, with Aaron Fanning, lead nutritionist, sports and active lifestyles at Fonterra's ingredient company NZMP. As we're primarily talking about sports nutrition, how has that field changed over the years? I've been at Fonterra for about 16 years. And prior to that, I studied nutrition as well as competed in the sporting environment since, I'd say, the the late 80s. And since that time, the sporting communities have changed. Obviously, the internet's come in and allowed uh, a lot more connections between the smaller sports. And it also allows for knowledge to be shared quite freely. So I'd say across that time, you've got a much broader population of people, not just athletes, but getting into the general public. And they're getting a lot more educated about uh, nutrition, the uh, benefits of consuming likes of protein to help them improve their sports performance. And I'd say it's also impacted the academic research because I know in the pre-internet days, even searching for papers took a long time, whereas now we can get information at the touch of a finger. I know that when I was growing up many years ago, it was kind of non-existent. There wasn't really much information on diets and recovery and all that kind of thing. So it really seems that the sports nutrition field is one that has grown and become extremely necessary. Yes, and obviously the sporting market's also grown. So it's not just the top-end athletes and the bodybuilders dominating the sports nutrition market, but it's really spreading out of the much more general public who are just wanting to improve their health or improve body composition or just feel better during the day. I think maybe 20, 30 years ago, even professional athletes didn't really have much access to sports nutrition and to a lot of this information. And even when it did start to become more prevalent for the general public, it was still more or less a them or us thing. It was the professional athletes doing one thing, but it really didn't seem to apply to the general public. But that seems to have changed as well. Yeah, and as nutrition knowledge has increased over the years, obviously the way industry and public health have basically communicated to people, the consumers can start to see the benefit of improving their diet, either on the body weight end of the spectrum or um, general health. And as far as Fonterra goes, what kind of studies has Fonterra been doing in this field? Fonterra's been doing research, um, especially dairy proteins, for probably the last 30 years before my time at Fonterra. Um, A lot of the work originally was almost on the protein quality end, so to understand how well our proteins can supply the essential nutrients in the diet. But in the last 15 years, we've been doing a range of different studies from bone health right through to more of the sports nutrition approach and some of the work I've been involved with is basically trying to understand how our dairy proteins are digested and metabolized as well as the impact they have on the muscle. So we start measuring muscle protein synthesis in response to diet and exercise. And what kinds of products have you been able to develop? I'd say one of the primary products that we've developed was we're looking at opportunities around milk protein concentrate and typically when you consume a milk protein concentrate there's quite a high content of casein in that product so about 80 percent of the protein and casein is a slow digesting protein and basically within the sports nutrition space people are wanting basically faster digestion protein so they usually consume whey proteins or hydrolysates and we 
basically approach of how could we get a milk protein to behave similarly to that. So we had developed one of our products, Shaw Protein Fast MPC 4868, and it allows for significantly faster rate of amino acid absorption compared to a standard milk protein and it's pretty much identical to a whey protein in that regards so that allows athletes to get a milk tasting product that improves their response to training and exercise and as far as your ingredients are concerned what kind of finished products can they be used in i think that's the probably the biggest advantage we have is we can pick and choose a range of ingredients that have their benefits across pretty much all of the standard formats. So if we need a product that's able to be treated uh, through UHT and shelf stable, we can produce a whey protein or a milk protein product from there. Or if we need a clear beverage, so some of the clear acidic beverages, we've got products for that type of solution. And we know our products very well, so we know how to formulate them, we know how they have to go through processing and then we know what impact they can have on our consumers and the, the benefits they should be able to see from it. When your customers come to you to formulate products, how do you work with them to bring these to market? Depending on what the customers are after, we can provide help or guidance on how to use the proteins or the ingredients in their products. And as well as from my side in the past, have helped support their consumer side of the business to describe on how the benefits can be seen by the customers or also how to formulate to uh, improve some of the outcomes. So if we're looking at muscle protein synthesis, we can provide guidance on the format, the dose, the um, type of protein that can optimize that response to the consumer. I guess that must be one of the toughest areas of the entire process. You you certainly can get the ingredient into the product, but then how do you communicate that to the end consumer? Is that left to your customers or do you help with that communication? We can definitely aid in that area, but obviously our customers know their consumers the best, so they'll know how to, to finish that consumer language, as well as there's also the regulatory space that can create complexities and how you can describe the benefits to consumers and we can help with the scientific substantiation to work towards some of those areas. As it seems to be an area that is growing so much and there are lots of products on the market, how do you differentiate between all of them or how does a consumer differentiate between them all? And that's where ultimately the science helps substantiate some of the stories. So there's a lot of whey proteins on the market, but we understand how our whey proteins function, what we've done to them during our processing, and what happens to them once you put them in the formulation as well. So we can start enabling our customers to describe the benefit and differentiate us from other competitors. So it could be a nutrition story, it could be a functionality story. And obviously this is an ever-changing and rapidly evolving area of study. What are you currently working on in this area? We're obviously quite interested in the sports nutrition space. Fonterra is also interested right across into the medical nutrition space and the healthy aging. And I think that's one of the areas of um, interest for the wider market that there's a lot more older athletes, obviously as the population ages generally, then the athletic population also ages. So you'll get more overlap between the healthy aging and the sports nutrition market. And that provides an opportunity to provide high quality nutrition that 
basically either maintains performance across the lifespan or helps maintain health across the lifespan. So we're doing research right across the spectrum there from basically young, healthy and working towards the more medical end of the spectrum as well. And is there a lot of overlap in those areas? You mentioned the the healthy aging and people doing activities later into life. Is it sort of like the individualized nutrition where are we getting towards a whole variety of products for different ages within that sports nutrition area? Yeah. So as you age, your body generally requires less energy, but the protein requirement actually goes up. So you need to be able to get products that have a good amount of protein and not a lot of energy. So it allows customers to consume enough to meet their requirements. And when you get into the athletic space, it requires even higher protein to maintain that muscle mass and maintain recovery. So you need that balancing act of maximum nutrition with minimum energy. So that creates a more individualized approach compared to a teenager who might be growing at the same time they're performing sports that will require a much higher energy product a much more nutritionally dense product to enable them to grow as well as perform. So really when it comes to a sports nutrition product there isn't a one size fits all because if you're 18 you would need a much different product to if you were in your 50s. Yes and I'd say the advantage is the muscle response they have the same metabolic pathways as young and old it's just typically how the older adult responds to that same amount of nutrition so we can gain a greater understanding of how we can manipulate the metabolic responses to help drive performance or drive muscle gain or help reduce body fat. And in terms of the products for, for that, do you see there's a whole range of products or do you see that there are areas where there's a bit of missing products that you can help with? Obviously, as if people are looking for a high protein diet, there's a range of dietary proteins typically they can get fatiguing to consume for a long time so if you're trying to maintain a high protein diet over a year or more you might get tired of eating the common chicken or beef so i think the advantage is you're able to fortify other foods with protein to provide a bit more variation in diet to give consumers something a bit more interesting across the day but then there's also other components of uh, our portfolio, so like some of our probiotic offerings help provide some of the other value propositions that people are looking for, especially in the sports space, so that digestive health and gut comfort into the spectrum. And then there's also some of our milk fat globule membrane products that we've done a, a lot of work in the infant nutrition market, but we're starting to identify opportunities across into the adult nutrition market that we should be hopefully having a launch later this year. Do you do a lot of research on what is missing from the market and areas where you can fill niches? Yep. So we basically keep an eye on the market trends and identify opportunities where products could fit. Obviously, for the aging population, it can be quite complicated to communicate because nobody likes to be told they're getting older. But um, at least on the sporting end of the spectrum, you generally start feeling things a bit more than you would have when you were younger. So the joints will hurt a bit more. So you start identifying things that you need to fix or to help maintain that exercise. So that can help drive those consumer behaviours to look for solutions. And that's where you can start basically producing products to help fix the common problems that people see. And I guess Fonterra can help in a lot of these areas. 
We have a range of different products that you can formulate into a variety of different consumer products. And consumers tend to be looking for something that's new. They tend to be looking for something that's nutritious. And it's how do you create a product that tastes good as well as provides the nutritional benefits they're looking for. And I think we've got the range and the breadth and the depth of options that we're able to formulate across that entire spectrum. And now it's to the global company Kerry to talk about the company's latest consumer research in the area of plant-based products. Ian Carroll is Kerry's Senior Strategic Marketing Manager for Plant Protein. So yeah, I guess if you could just first give me some details on the research that you have done, where it was done, how it was done, the kind of people that you were looking for, because obviously different perspectives depending on whether you're omnivore, vegetarian, vegan. Yeah, sure. Actually, just to give some some context as to why we carried out the research first. So I guess, as we all know, plant-based is a very dynamic category and it's quickly evolving. And I guess we felt that up until this point, there's been a fairly simplistic view of the plant-based consumer. So like, as you said, we know vegans and vegetarians are well-established and this idea of flexitarianism is on the rise. So beyond like health reasons in terms of planetary health, animal health and personal health, we just felt there wasn't a huge understanding of the underlying motivations behind those consumers. So we went out more with a, with a research project to really understand the consumer in the plant-based space. So the scope for the, the research was Europe, and uh, we selected the countries where penetration of plant-based diets were the highest. So we had some data internally. We had an omnibus just in terms of penetration of plant-based diets, by country in Europe. So uh, on the basis of that, we selected the UK, Germany, France, Netherlands, Belgium and Sweden as the six countries that we went into field with the, the research. The methodology was an online survey, so it took approximately 20 minutes to complete. So there's about just over 3,800 respondents in total spread across those six countries. And we weighted the sample sizes by country just to make sure that the results were representative of the general population. And in terms of who we wanted to speak to, I guess rather than speak to consumers who self-identify as a particular type of plant-based consumer, which can be arbitrary because like I know veganism is an ethical lifestyle for life and not something that you dip in and out of. But what we have noticed is people are having like a vegan month or a vegan day a week. So rather than using kind of established terms to identify who the consumers are, we wanted to do it on the basis of their consumption pattern. So what we did was we had a screening question in the questionnaire. We asked consumers how many plant-based products do they purchase across different categories? So categories such as meat alternatives, milk alternatives, dairy-free cheese, dairy-free yogurt, and then how often they make those purchases. So we screened it on the basis of a consumer must consume from at least three categories on a monthly or more frequent basis in order to be captured within this survey. So that was the kind of benchmark we set in terms of what a plant-based consumer is. What did the results show? Were you surprised by them or how did it pan out? Yeah, so 
there were some really interesting results from the research. I guess the key thing that it showed was that the motivations underpinning plant-based diets, they're very complex, they're personal, and they're deeply rooted. So it allowed us to segment across four different segments. So the first one, which is about 20% of the population, we call eco-ethicals. So those are consumers that are principally motivated by animal and planetary health. So those things align to their values. Then the second segment we found were consumers that were calling natural nutrition seekers. They're about a quarter of the population. Those consumers, their primary influence is the quest for clean and natural food and beverages. The third one, which is another quarter of the population, we call lifestyle enhancers. Those are consumers who enjoy options that are plant-based. It opens up a number of different options for them within plant-based and they enjoy belonging to the identity of being a plant-based consumer. So it's, a, it's kind of a social badge for them. And then the final, the biggest segment that we found, which is about a third of consumers, we call them body optimizers. So they're driven by the desire to get the most from their bodies by making healthy choices and mitigate the negative influences of things like allergies and intolerances and external environmental aspects as well. So I guess the so what out of all of that is each of these typologies will be more responsive to specific benefits within plant-based foods and specific messages on pack. So a couple of examples, we found that natural nutrition seekers, they respond really well to fortification messages on a plant-based product. So whether that's fortified with protein or extra fiber, that's the kind of messaging and benefit that they're seeking. Whereas on the other hand, lifestyle embracers and body optimizers, they're looking more for allergen-free messaging. Uh, so that's the thing that really drives them in terms of product choice and call-outs on pack. The prevalence of typologies are very similar across markets, uh, which was quite an interesting finding. So whether we looked at Sweden or Germany or the UK, broadly speaking, the same motivations were at play and the percentage of the population that were described as a particular segment were fairly uh, uniform across the regions. Another call out, I guess, from a dairy perspective, if you look at dairy alternative consumers and meat alternative consumers, there's a huge overlap between them. So I think 83% of those that are weekly plus dairy alternative consumers also are weekly plus meat alternative. And then the other way around, it's 93% of weekly plus meat alternative consumers are also weekly plus dairy alternative consumers. So by and large, when you look at the plant-based consumer, they are purchasing and consuming across both meat and dairy alternative subcategories. So you're talking to the same consumer pretty much. Do you see that this is something that is evolving rapidly? Because I mean, I would think about four years ago, I maybe got one press release on plant-based every couple of months, and now I'm getting several a day. So it, yeah. it seems to be changing all the time, and the demands of consumers seem to be changing as well. Yes, I think that's very fair. So I think... There's a number of drivers that are changing the category. Like I think it's become embedded in culture. So everything from Netflix documentaries to social influencers on Instagram to blog posts. So I think consumer understanding of number one, health has become a lot more immediate and the connection between plant-based foods and health has become a lot stronger. So I think that's driven a lot of evolution within the plant-based category. And I think there's a few areas 
that that evolution has taken place. So the first one is around taste. In the past, I think it would be fair to say that some of the early generation plant-based products didn't really deliver on taste versus the alternative. I think the consumer expectation has become a lot higher now because flexitarians are eating across meat, dairy, animal-based and plant-based categories. They have a much broader spectrum of benchmarks to compare against. So that has really risen the bar when it comes to taste expectation within plant-based for the, the flexitarian consumer. I think the second area is about being closer to the source. So again, I think some early generation products probably had artificial ingredients in order to deliver upon the taste profile. Consumers now are becoming a lot more aware. They're turning over to look at the back of pack. They're reading the ingredient declaration and they don't want to see any ingredients in there that they don't recognize or can't pronounce. So a clean label product is really desirable and that's driving a lot of evolution in the category. The third area is around health. As I mentioned, it's very important, but it's particularly important for the plant-based consumer. So one of the major reasons why consumers make plant-based food choices is because they perceive it to be healthier. So that needs to be a key message for manufacturers if they want to connect with the plant-based consumer. And then the final area I think that's driving evolution in the category is around sustainability. So I think as a society, we're becoming a lot more aware of the future of our planet, the damage that we're doing to our planet, climate change, all of that kind of stuff is in cultural consciousness now. And I think consumers are a lot more savvy in terms of the product choices they're making and the influence that they can have on the environment on the basis of those choices. So again, sustainability in plant-based is extremely important because a consumer expects if they're making a plant-based choice that it's more sustainable than the animal-based option. So it's another key driver of evolution. What are you seeing as the key features of plant-based products as we move forward? Is it cheaper prices to make them more realistic? Is it more choice? Is it improved taste? Or is it just a complete combination of factors? Yeah, sure. So I think our research has shown that it is definitely a combination of factors. There's no one feature in isolation that will satisfy the needs of the consumer. But I guess there's four that are prioritized and need to work in combination. So the first one, again, is taste. Taste comes out as the most important factor across the board when you look at food and beverage, and it's the same in plant-based foods. So ultimately, if a product doesn't taste good, the consumer won't buy it. But layered into that then is nutrition as well, because as we said, nutritional profile is increasingly important. So consumers, as I said, are looking at the back of pack, they're looking at the ingredients declaration. So if a product achieves taste, but it has only done that at the expense of the nutritional profile, which is sometimes the case, consumers will go for another product. So it needs to be taste that is supported by strong nutrition. Then the third area is very much about range. Like there's a higher expectation regarding breadth of choice in the category. I think like once upon a time, plant-based foods were very niche and specialized products. So you've probably seen a very small section in the supermarket or a, a specialized health store, or there was a token vegetarian or vegan option on the menu. I think now as plant-based moves into the mainstream, you can see it in the main fixture of the retailers. It's part of their strategy. I think food service operators need to provide a good range of plant-based options, not just a token vegetarian option. 
And as taste trends evolve and the consumer trends evolve, plant needs to react to that as well. Plant has now come into the fold as a, as a mainstream food category and doesn't exist in isolation as a niche anymore. And then the final area is price. Like price is important. And I guess there's two elements to this. One is Definitely consumers are willing to pay more for a better, more premium product, but at the same time, they don't want to be penalized or feel like they've been penalized for making a plant-based choice. So I think plant-based manufacturers do need to benchmark price against the animal-based products in the category and have a clear appreciation that plant-based consumers will expect to be treated the same as any other consumer in the category. As Kerry, working with your customers, how can you help manufacturers to achieve progress in this area? Is it through this knowledge? Is it through your products or do they go hand in hand? Yeah, so I think Kerry are in an ideal position to help because we've got a strong heritage in dairy, in meat and in plant protein. So if anyone knows how to bring a product together in plant-based within dairy alternative and meat alternative, it should be us. What we've done in order to help our customers is we've created a portfolio called Radical. So Radical is a portfolio of sustainable solutions and like it's designed to help our customers innovate to win in plant-based foods. So there's a number of ways that we do that. Number one, it's insight-led. So it can help manufacturers identify how to play and where to win in plant-based foods. So some manufacturers are coming into plant for the first time. So the most important thing to do is to understand the market. And that's where our insight and our knowledge can help. Then I think the second thing is like plant-based ingredients can be difficult to work with because they don't behave like animal-based products. So we've got heritage and expertise in processing and in ingredients that will help across like four key areas of challenge that customers have. So the first one is delivering great taste. The second one is a good nutritional profile. A third one is having a sustainable plant protein base. And then the fourth one is around functionality. So how does the product perform and function when it ends up on the the supermarket shelf or in the, the food service outlet? And then the final area, I think, where we bring it all together is expertise and application. So we have a global chef network that can help produce concepts that are appealing to the consumer, that are on trend, that bring all of our our solutions and our technologies together into a, a final product to win with the consumer. You just came out with this new ebook. What does that contain that will be of help to your customers? Yeah, so as part of a recent uh, radical campaign, we've created a 26-page ebook, and the idea behind that ebook is to act as a guide to manufacturers to create winning plant-based food solutions using insight and innovation. So there's a few key areas that we touch upon within the ebook. First of all, market and consumer trends. Secondly, then is a framework for successful innovation. So we have a dedicated innovation team within Kerry that has developed the framework over a number of years to help manufacturers launch products that are successful because we recognize that it's a very expensive business uh, launching a new product. Cost of failure is high. So there's a framework there to help them launch a product and avoid a lot of the mistakes that can be made along the way. 
And then we also have some interviews with our experts. So we've interviews with our RDNA manager, our sustainability director, our nutritional manager, and some of our culinary teams as well. So they all give valuable insights in terms of what it takes to create a winning plant-based product. So that ebook is available now and it can be downloaded from kerry.com forward slash radical. As far as helping your customers to get to that particular point, as you've said, there's an awful lot involved in plant-based products and they're constantly changing. And for some companies that might be a little confusing or daunting. Are you able to help companies right the way through from having the idea to getting the product onto the shelf? Yes, absolutely. We are like, I guess we we position ourselves as a full service partner. We provide a, a holistic solution. So we work with customers, whatever stage of the journey that they're on. So some of our customers are new to plant-based. They don't know the first thing about it. So we use our, our market knowledge, our expertise, our consumer insight to identify where to play and how to win for them. Uh, equally, we've got other customers that have products on the market that aren't performing well. So we can work with them in terms of renovation, whether it's taste, it's nutrition, it's functionality. And then also, as I said, we work with customers that are looking to innovate. So we can partner the whole way along the journey, depending where the customer need is. So whether that's that's market insight, all the way up to product concept development uh, for launch on the market. I guess a lot of companies haven't even jumped into this space yet and may not even have an idea about what kind of products they want to launch. Can you help companies that don't even have the initial concept of what they want, but they just know they want to get into the space? Yes, that's correct. And we even see some manufacturers that are traditionally animal-based products that are a bit skeptical of plants and feel that it can be a competitor or it could potentially cannibalize their business. But more and more as the category develops, we're seeing engagement with those kind of customers because I think they realize that the future is a flexitarian future where consumers will make both animal and plant-based product choices. So I think that is arguably the most important step in the process is understanding the market, understanding what do I know? And more importantly, what do I not know? Try and fill the information gaps. And that's the only way that these kind of businesses can be set up for success. It's interesting you should mention that because from personal experience, one thing that I've seen is that some of the companies that traditionally produce meat products that have now produced a plant-based product, they're excellent. And the same goes for some of the dairy alternatives. Some of the companies that produce cheese are now producing plant-based cheese alternatives and they're excellent. So it would make sense that these are the kind of companies that should be getting into the space because they know what the products are as opposed to some of the startups that are sort of starting from scratch. Absolutely. And I completely agree with that. I think that the companies that know the product the best should be in the best position to replicate that in an alternative. It's a case of, I think, understanding the consumer needs and making sure that that need is delivered against because the needs in plant-based and animal-based are different, as I've just explained earlier with the segmentation. So it is understanding the need and then developing a solution using your existing expertise to fulfill that need.
And now it's time for our weekly update on the global dairy markets with Stone X, and this week it's with Liam Fenton. This week saw a general softening in prices in butter. Also, skim milk powder was flat to slightly down, I guess pretty much in line with what happened on the GDT uh, yesterday, where we were down around 2%. Quarter four, uh, trading around the 33.40 level, down around 70 euros on the week. Quarter one, 2020, trading around 32.75 level, is down around 55 euros on the week. Quarter two is down around 50 euros at 33.25 and uh, quarter three, pretty flat, uh, not a lot of trading at around the 34, 40, 45 level. Uh, skim milk powder, slightly softer, but relatively stable, shall we say. Quarter four trading around 21, 60, 65 level, which is the same as last week. The same level as well for quarter one, 2020, which is maybe up a bit on last week, about a tenner. And then quarter two, down around 15 euros at 21.85 level and uh, quarter three also down around 22.25. Yeah, quarter one of, of 2020 is trading around 21.60 level, which is down around a tenner on the week. Way has remained relatively flat. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another podcast. As you can well imagine, I'm already working on next week's show with one interview tomorrow night, although before that there's the small matter of a live webinar to do, and hopefully you'll join us for that. If you're listening to the podcast after November the 5th, that's okay, you can still listen to the webinar on demand. Next week, we might know who has won the presidential election in the US, and there may have been a rain-free day here in lockdown tier 3 southwest Scotland. The next podcast will also be going out on Veterans Day in the US, or Remembrance Day in the UK, and I appreciate that it's a public holiday in some countries like the US, France and Belgium, and not others. Regardless, I hope you will join us again next week, and until then, have a great week, take care, stay safe, and, as always, thanks for listening.